Good morning. This is Talking Animals on WMNF. I'm Duncan Strauss. And my guest today is Joshua Zeman, the director of The Loneliest Whale, The Search for 52, a feature-length documentary that unspools into a riveting pursuit of 52 Hertz whale, which scientists of various stripes believe has spent his whole life in solitude because, it is believed, he's communicating at a frequency no other whale can understand. While The Loneliest Whale is clearly a documentary and features a slew of people who embrace science and technology, the film also bears elements of a thriller with no shortage of adrenaline-soaked suspense. Seaman is an accomplished filmmaker, having made a number of documentaries. His most recent work previously includes the Netflix docuseries The Son of Sam's Descent into Darkness. We'll discuss The Loneliest Whale, The Search for 52, which opens in theaters this Friday, July 9th, and will be available on demand a week later. The considerable challenges involved in the quest for 52 Hertz Whale alongside the challenges of making this film and the triumphs along the way when I speak with Josh Demon in a few moments here on Talking Animals on WMNF. I should mention that the second season of Dogs and the premiere of Cat People, a series we discussed last week with executive producer Glenn Zipper, are available today on Netflix. Meanwhile, later in today's program, I'll speak briefly with Lloyd Schiller, who, as it happens, lives in my neck of the woods, Jupiter Farms. Schiller recently announced a walloping gift to Bush Wildlife Sanctuary in Jupiter as a monumental thank you for their help many years ago saving his turtle. We'll hear briefly about that situation and Schiller's donation later in today's program. Right now, though, let's discuss The Loneliest Whale, The Search for 52 with Joshua Zeman, with a reminder that I invite you to join the conversation by calling 813-239-9663, emailing dj at wmnf.org, or texting 813-433-0885. This is Joshua Zeman on Talking Animals on WMF. Good morning, Joshua. Good morning, sir. How are you? Um, great, and thank you so much for joining us on Talking Animals. My pleasure. So I love the film, which we'll get into. I hopefully kind of indicated that in my opening uh, remarks here. But also, at the same time, based on your previous work and your resume, I don't know that I would have predicted you making a whale film. So was I just not paying attention properly, or is The Loneliest Whale indeed something of a departure? Uh, you know, it's it, it's a departure, but also, you know, I make films that are about mystery. Yeah. Sometimes those are crime mysteries, and sometimes, you know, those are mysteries of the ocean. True, I needed a palate cleanser after the Sons of Sam. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But, uh, but uh, you know, it, 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 it does seem to me to have a certain kind of feeling about legends and solving mysteries and, you know, going out on quests and things like that. Oh, for sure. And as I also mentioned, once the film starts rolling along, there really is kind of a, uh, not only a mystery element, but sort of almost like a thriller element. Like you're going, hey, man, what's going to happen around this next corner? What's happening in this, the next day on the expedition, etc." So there, there's all those things kind of rolled into this. Well, nothing like a ticking clock of an expedition. Right. You, yeah. Fortunately, you know. That's uh, drama right there, right? Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, you know, you only have seven days to go out and find this creature in already is what, a, you know, implied a monumentous task. Sure. Trying to find one whale in an entire ocean. It is a little bit crazy. But, you know, with the right technology and with a very unique whale, you know, 
stranger things have happened. For sure. Well, I want to get into that expedition in those seven days in a moment or two. But you do mention in the new film that you grew up around the water, worked on a sailing ship. So presumably that was a factor, had an impact in terms of saying, okay, well, what is my next project? And um, But I kind of suspect, given what the whole mythology and everything else that surrounds 52 is, that something more profound propelled you towards making this film rather than just like, okay, I got to follow Sons of Sam. How, how can I? Yeah, I, I need a palate. There, there's probably a number of palate cleansers that you could have come up with that didn't involve something quite as ambitious as this. So what else What else kind of uh, pulled you in that direction? Well, you know, it was interesting. I had first heard with the story, and truth be told, I had been going through a breakup, and I was like, oh, the lonely as well. So that was like my very quick entree. But it was really amazing because I pitch a lot of stories. I'm a storyteller. And I was talking to people like, hey, you ever heard the story about the loneliest whale as well that swims to the ocean calling out and theoretically never receives a response. And all he does is just swim out calling and calling. And the reaction that I got from people, just giving them a very short elevator pitch, people would cry. They would get goosebumps. They would grab my hand and beg me to, to, to know more. And I was so fascinated because I'd never gotten that reaction to a story before. And I said, well, oh my God, well, what, you know, what is it about this story? You know, is it this idea of loneliness and the idea that maybe we're going through a loneliness, loneliness epidemic and, and somehow this is, you know, the metaphor of that is this just, you know, human beings existential crisis, you know, we have this fear of dying alone. Is that just kind of mirrored back on us through the story of this whale? But then, you know, or is it something more? I mean, we've heard of Lonesome George, the, the turtle, <laughs> you know, so was it the fact that it was a whale? And that was really interesting to me. You know, whales are majestic creatures, and they're so big that we're somewhat humbled in their presence, not somewhat, for sure, yeah. in their presence. And, you know, they're almost spiritual or otherworldly, and, and here they are out in the middle of this vast, vast ocean, completely you know, darkness filled void, you know, calling out, you know, so was that, was our fear of dying alone just kind of supersized, if you would. And and, and in doing that, I like learned about whales and I learned how little we know about whales and about the mysteries of the ocean and about how cool sound is in the ocean. And I said, you know what, this is, this is a fascinating story that deserves to be told. Yeah. At the same time, I mean, some of even a, a passing familiarity with documentary films realize they typically are hard work, long slogs, and typically not exactly get-rich schemes. So it seems like that's why documentary filmmakers are usually, like, super driven, right, by some sort of tremendous passion to make that movie, despite those things I just mentioned, despite their own white whale, really, I guess. Um, (laughs) Otherwise, it seems like the time and trouble and strain and and cost sometimes in various definitions of that word do not add up to being anywhere near worth it. So I imagine there were times when you felt like, hey, maybe this sounded good at times and interesting that it was a whale, but... My God, is is this film really in the cards? Were there moments like that along the way? Oh, to use, you know, I was literally going to cut bait so many times. Uh, but for some reason, I couldn't. You know, it took me four years to even get to the point of going on an expedition. Yeah. We're not even talking the money. We had a very successful Kickstarter campaign. Um, Adrian Grenier, executive, came on as an executive producer. And then luckily, DiCaprio came in, gave us some money in Kickstarter. And so incredibly successful Kickstarter campaign. 
Yet the biggest problem was trying to not only find this whale, but prove that he was still alive. The last time they had heard him was in the late 90s. Um, no one had been listening. The U.S. Navy stopped allowing scientists to use their SOSIS system, which is their secret classified underwater surveillance system of microphones that they have through the ocean. You know, back when the Berlin Wall fell, they handed it over to the scientists and said, oh, use this system to, to listen to whale calls and measure whale populations. Well, since that time, the Cold War has restarted, and a big battlefield is in the water via submarine. Uh, and so when the polar ice cap, while well, that is melting, that is our next battle on Earth up there and, and, and with submarines. So they won't allow, they did not allow us to, to use their system to find the whales. And there was a point at which basically after like two and a half years, they said, oh, we think the whale's dead. Uh, I didn't even know what to do. I was sitting with this uh, money from Kickstarter. I thought I was going to be laughed out of the Kickstarter, laughed out of the, the documentary world. But thank God uh, we got a call basically a couple months later from a guy named John Hildebrand over at Scripps who has his own microphones in the ocean. And he says, ironically, an intern, I think an intern said, <laughs> you think we found the whale. And uh, from that, uh, we actually went out on the expedition. But it was extremely difficult. Yeah, there's all kinds of things that, this being a documentary, that are sources of information or advance of film. And there's that thing you just referred to. There's a phone call that you're on where this is reported. And uh, as powerful a phone call, I think, as anybody could hope to uh, listen in on because it just seemed like it changed your and everybody else's that cares about this fortunes. Oh, oh, oh. I, I had been searching all up and down the West Coast. We thought the whale was, we were going to go have to find the whale in um, Alaska, the Gulf of Alaska, where basically the weather is unbelievably bad. It's like deadliest cat 24-7. They're like, well, there might be about five day, five hours of daylight, but you'll be puking the whole time. But, you know, maybe we'll find the whale. And that's where I was going to go. And then again, as I said before, we thought it was dead for so long. But then finally we get this call from John Hildebrand saying, you think the whale's alive and he's in Santa Barbara. Yeah. Channel <laughs> Island. You know, he's looking for his close-up. Incredible. Yeah. No, I mean, it, the fact that it could have been anywhere or sadly at one point, maybe not even with us anymore. Yeah. We're all different scenarios. So, yeah, the fact that it was, hey, we think 52 is alive and well and just down the road a piece basically was like, geez. <laughs> That's uh, that's too much. This is Talking Animals. I'm Duncan Strauss. If you just tuned in, my guest is Joshua Zeman, the director of The Loneliest Whale, The Search for 52, a feature-length documentary chronicling the science-oriented pursuit of a whale that experts think has spent his whole life in solitude because they believe he's communicating in a frequency no other whale can understand. The film opens in theaters this Friday, July 9th. If you'd like to ask uh, Joshua a question about the film and or the whale, please call 813-239-9663. Email dj at wmnf.org or text 813 813- So there's sort of a, the 52 hertz whale world is, I mean, 52 seems like kind of this esoteric critter. He's known to a small but but mighty group of oceanographers, whale experts, including ones obviously who specialize in whale communication and other scientists as well as more recently, lots of folks on social media. Can you describe 52 in a bit more detail and sort of that following or that world that's kind of built up around what may or may not have been a myth, for, and then it, we clearly find that the whale still is around and, and out there. Yeah, well, you know, they had first heard this whale on these government microphones, and they didn't. They never saw the whale. They just heard the whale. And he calls out at this 
52 frequency. And that frequency is unlike the frequency that any other whale uses to communicate. Uh, typically, when you're hearing whales out in the middle of the, of the great ocean, you're listening to low frequency whales that speak out between 2 and 10 and 15 hertz. But they thought that this sound, this mysterious 52 hertz sound, was made by a whale. And the idea probably is that there's something unique about this whale. He's either the first of his kind, the last of his kind, or chances are a hybrid cross between the blue and fin, and therefore he makes this, or, or maybe he has this anomaly, you know, in his call, like some kind of um, issue in his call. Yeah. And so the idea is that he swims to the ocean calling out and probably the other whales can't hear him or, or understand what he's saying. He might be hanging out with them, but he doesn't, they don't understand each other. And, you know, from that story that came out, it was in the New York Times, it kind of got picked up and got to be made into this meme. You know, people love to make memes about lonely things yeah. know, sometimes. And so, you know, the, the meme of the loneliest whale really kind of picked up around the ocean. Of course, a lot of memes about whales. Um, and it's interesting. It developed its own kind of went around the globe. And then BTS, the Korean well, number one band in the world, the Korean, uh, you know, boy band, made a song called Whalen 52. It's whale and it's, you know, all the members singing about their idea of what the whale is. And again, the story is very much open to interpretation. I think that that's what's kind of cool about the story and why a lot of people identify, because we don't know exactly what it is, so it allows you to put your own brand of understanding on it. Uh, it's really become a thing. Uh, you know, when we started this, not that many people knew about it, but, you know, it took 10 years to make the film, and during that time, the story has really kind of circumnavigated the globe. And given that sort of 52 universe that did develop over all those years, and this array of people who cared more and more deeply, sometimes for different reasons, or like they brought their own interpretation, as you say, uh, about the whale. Did that make you more compelled to find him or more uneasy about disappointing all these people who seemed to have a lot of stake in uh, what was going what this 52 story was? You know, it's good. I honestly, you know, the scientists would always come to me and they would be like, well, you know, chances that we're going to find this are very slim. I, for some reason, always had this idea that we were going to find it no matter what, um, just because it was such a beautiful human story. But, you know, what's very interesting about these ideas and, and legends is that every search, whether you find it or not, or any any iteration of that search only adds to the mythology. Yeah. And so, you know, that's the funny thing about urban legends and stories like these. So really exciting. You know, I, I don't want to disappoint anybody. Thankfully... I don't think our fans, we're not going to tell you what the answer to the movie is or what happens. Right. But I don't think they're going to be disappointed. No, but as you're saying this, it reminds me that, so that listeners know that, yeah, of course we're not going to get into any spoilers, but, but it's not a spoiler, I think, to say at all that you're not only the, the filmmaker and the director and co-writer of uh, The Loneliest Whale, The Search for 52, but also that you're an on-screen presence at times. And the only reason I bring that up right now is because when you're talking about your unwavering optimism, I mean, your face and your expression sometimes when there's a, a good development or maybe a not-so-good development, it couldn't be more clear, like, what's going on on your face. It's like, oh, my God, really? He's not there? Or, oh, really? We, we, might, we might have heard something? I mean, your face just brightens or kind of dims accordingly. So, anyway. Well, you know, it's a testament to this story, to be honest. Like, I don't know, 
you know, we could go through and we could sit here and try and, you know, dissect the whole story of why people love whales. But people love whales. Yeah. You know, they just do. And yes, you know, creatures and, and we, you know, there's some really interesting kind of discussions about how that works throughout history. But people love whales and you can't help but be in awe of, you know, of, of, of them. But like the idea of going out to find a singular whale, that is a very common thread. You know, one of our most famous books. Moby Dick is about the idea of going out to find a unique whale. And, you know, it just, it, it didn't really work out that way. Like, or like, I wish it wasn't so Ahabby in this quest. I didn't wish I hadn't spent maybe 10 years and all that money and all that time. I could have used a little sort of save five years and a couple hundred thousand dollars. <laughs> yeah. but, but, you know, there's just something so special and so unique about that journey and about that quest. And let's face it, we don't go on quests anymore. Yeah. You know, uh, you know, the, we're, we're, What's our biggest search? The search engine, right. you know, yeah. Google, you know, let, you know, we, we don't go, I can answer any question that you want on Google. You know, we always think that we have all the answers in our fingertips, but here's a story that we didn't have the answer to. And here was an opportunity to go out on the ocean to find a unique whale. You know, yeah. how could you not take that gauntlet and that challenge and go for it? Yeah. Well, in a way that kind of brings me to the group of people that get involved in this, but I'll get into in a sec, but just about the, uh, the power of whale. And it seems pretty universal, uh, just sort of by coincidence. A couple weeks ago, I was on uh, in California on vacation. That's actually where I'm from, though. So I took my family. I want to do a little whale watching thing because we're all into, not surprisingly, given the show, animals. <laughs> and uh, But I didn't want to do the old school, like go out on the half-day fishing boat, look around for whales, whatever. So there was this kind of newer upstart uh, in, in Newport Beach where, where we were going to be doing this. And that had like kind of souped-up zodiacs. So they were fast and nimble. And it just seemed like, okay, even if we don't see much, it's going to just be fun to be out on these, whatever. And we did see like two or 300 common uh, dolphin uh, pods of that, and that was a total treat. But at some point, we saw a blue whale, and I, mm. my mind was blown. Cause it was just one blue whale, didn't have any kind of mythology, it didn't have any kind of communication difficulties or whatever, like uh, like 52. But, I mean, we were all sort of just so thrilled because that's a super rare whale to see on, in any context. And sure. if you care about animals, much less whales, couldn't help but be thrilled. So anyways, just as an aside, I just think that yeah, no matter who you are or what your story is or what the whale story is, if you can run into or get even close to any kind of cool whale, really. But a blue whale just seems to c carry extra points. So anyways, back to uh, back to the team. Because uh, as you were assembling this team of uh, oceanographers to, to go on this expedition that we've now referred to a few times, there were uh, scientists, oceanographers, communication experts, others that would go on this expedition. And as you were assembling that, or as it was being assembled, I guess, I couldn't help thinking this film was kind of become we already talked about other elements of film that is kind of becoming a caper because here's the <laughs> wheel man, here's the surveillance expert and, and so on. And again, but it also just kind of seemed more enticing and just kind of alluring like, oh, wow, this guy's this guy's a hot shot. This guy's a hot shot. There's going to be a conflict because there's so many hot shots all kind of stuffed on a boat. But how did it feel on your end as the squad was coming together? Listen, you know, you, you were talking about my my face being lit up. I was I just couldn't believe that we these guys said yes. I mean, these were some of the best whale 
experts in the world. Yeah. Um, and, you know, here we had an opportunity, a kind of, uh, you know, an impossible mission, if you will, to go out and find one whale in an entire ocean. And they said yes, you know. And, you know, you watch the film, and the film's definitely a little bit indie, you know. And I think the expedition is a little bit indie as well. You know, we had $400,000 from Kickstarter. Thank God for all our Kickstarter fans out there. Um, and this was an opportunity for these guys to kind of get out there and, and really, you know, get dirty with it, you know, do science that they had never, ever done before. And it wasn't like they didn't have those pressures of like huge Nat Geo, you know, expeditions here. They could go out and they could try stuff and they could try different stuff and stuff they'd never done before. And I think that actually allowed them to do even better science than they had ever done before. And also, I think along the lines of what you said is that the mission, the expedition, Again, the fact that it was 52 and everything that we now have discussed kind of that, that goes on around 52. I mean, I think everybody that might be busy or say, I've got other stuff going or I don't know if I can make it that week or whatever, seemed to like clear their calendars or do what they could they could just to sort of be there. And they were like totally game for it. Well, I mean, you know, I mean, again, the, oppor- you gotta, the opportunity to do something impossible, Yeah, you know, for some reason just pulls people in. And what was cool is that like they had never done this. They had never... A- acoustically tried to locate a whale in the ocean. I mean, we used uh, equipment from the U.S. Navy, um, old sonar buoys that had been decommissioned by the U.S. Navy. We got, a, we got a huge container of those, you know, put those out in the ocean. It starts listening for the sound. Hopefully it then picks up the sound of 52, and then you know that you're close, and then you have to send um, whale taggers out in Zodiac to go out and look and see if they could find a whale that kind of looks like an anomaly and honing in at the same time. So while they're honing in with down, they're also honing in visually. It's a totally cool and interesting thing. It's like submarine hunting, but with a whale. Yeah, and uh, and uh, there's all these people, and there's all this equipment, and like you said, some very sophisticated equipment, and you know, laptops and stuff everywhere. And uh, there's obviously all this is on a boat. So uh, when you're talking about the GoFundMe thing, is is that how the funding for this came together? Because it's very clear the expedition is going to be one week. Apparently, cannot go one day longer. So is that just because here's the dough we have? Here's how that's going to be budgeted out, and either we'll find 52 during that week or we won't, but we can't. We can't extend that. Is that? Yeah, I mean, there wasn't anybody to call. We specifically set up a Kickstarter campaign, uh, and people could donate to go out and help us search to find 52, and that is exactly uh, what that money was used for. And and you'd be surprised how expensive these expeditions could go for. You know, we had $400,000 and went down the line of like, okay, this much money for gas, this much money for food, this much money for permits, this much money for, you know, tags. And so it was really super fascinating to go out and to kind of figure out how to do this. And then everybody even did it for very little. But, you know, it adds up, especially after seven days. You know, you're talking 22 people, seven days on a tiny boat. Yeah. With that in mind, I kind of alluded to this a second ago, but, I mean, there was obviously, like, some pretty significant hot shots that were on that mm-hmm. boat. Uh, just generally or from your own showbiz years or whatever, did you worry that, like, what's going to happen if there's, like, a, you know, ego hassle or power struggle <laughs> or any anything that, especially on a confined space, could, could easily happen with people that are that accomplished and that talented and that smart? It, 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 that can happen, but I think, you know, the other thing is, is when you have such leaders, there's a lot of respect, you know, and so... 
actually, we had gone to a guy, John Hildebrand, and he said, well, we said, like, well, who's the best, the, the best in the disc? And he said, well, the best is John Columbus, you know? And he's like, I wouldn't even go if I did, we didn't have the best. And so, you know, we got the best. And when yeah. you have the best, everybody kind of falls in line properly. You know, at the same time, like, we're all going out to find a, you know, a lonely whale, theoretically. Yeah. So, you know, there was a lot of, there was a lot of heart, you know, with the project. There was a lot of good vibes, you know, because every, we were all going out and trying to find this one fun whale. <laughs> yeah. And that really does come across because you really do get the sense when you're seeing scenes of people on the boat. And of course, when things are in action and there's a whale spotted or aggregation or whatever, the people are really working together and really have tremendous respect for each other. And again, everybody seems to be deferring to the larger cause, which is like, can we find 52? Yeah, because it was just so incredibly difficult. So. Yeah. It was really great that everybody joined together. You know, one thing is that, and it was so interesting as a filmmaker to see the science in action, yeah. you know, and, and it was a little bit scrappy, but it was so interesting at, at, at some point, you know, the scientists, because they had never really done this before, they would turn to us and be like, wait, your drone, can we use your drone to go over here? And so suddenly the drone operators become part of uh, the, you know, the search. And so it was really fun as a filmmaker to, to be part of that science that's unfolding. And you actually get to see some really amazing kind of like first, like, oh, this is the first time uh, this is ever done before. Like that happened on the boat on our expedition numerous times. So that was very exciting. Yeah, because as precise as science is, especially with people that are that respected as scientists, there did seem to be a lot of improvising just given the nature of the project. And like you said, you know, there's there's a drone there. Like, hey, we could use that uh, as part of the expedition, not just to capture it on film. So, uh, Yeah, and, and that was that's really interesting. But, you know, it's again, it also goes to show how little they know. You know, there were times in which... I would be like, well, we obviously know this, this, and this. And we're like, they would pipe up and be like, actually, we don't know that. We don't know that. Yeah. I was like, how do you wait? How do you not know that? And they're like, okay, well, we study whales. Whales are typically found in the deep, deep ocean. They're huge. We don't have them in captivity. And, you know, when you get close to one, you have like about, you know, a 15-second chance of getting a tag on one, much less hanging out with it and, you know, asking it a whole bunch of questions. Well, and I think it might have been Hillebrand, but someone at some point, and I'm best paraphrasing, but says one of the things that kind of appeals to them or maybe them or him or maybe them more broadly is that there's an opportunity in this kind of situation to learn something which, again, for a lot of sort of grizzled, hotshot scientists, you know, probably doesn't happen routinely to that degree. But that was like a huge appeal of this uh, of this expedition. Again, it, it is so crazy. And as somebody who studies, you know, like looks at mysteries, how many mysteries there are out in the ocean. So I think that that was really, really important. Yeah. Okay, and this is Talking Animals. I'm Duncan Strauss. My guest is Joshua Zeman, who directed The Loneliest Whale, The Search for 52, a feature-length documentary opening in theaters this Friday, July 9th, and then it'll be on digital on demand uh, one week later, July 16th. And uh, we invite you to join the conversation by calling 813-239-9663, emailing DJ at WMNF.org or texting 813-433-0885. So a small question that I think someone raises in the film, 52 is always referred to as he. How do we know this or are we just saying he's he just because no, we are? only the male thing. Only the male thing. Ah, okay. If, God, if that was made clear in the film, I must have missed that. Okay. All right. That's... Only the male thing. And, and interestingly enough, we don't act exactly know why they sing. I mean, we know it's some sort of social function. Um, but, you know, interestingly enough, we've never seen it 
we've never seen a male sing and a female then kind of come up and be like, hey, that was, you know, that was really great. Oh, oh, so it's never for mating then? No, well, it's just we've never seen that happen. Oh, I see. It doesn't mean that it's not for mating. It's just, it's just that, you know, there would be a cause and effect. We think it is some kind of social engagement in that fact. Um, you know, maybe it doesn't have to be right then and there. Right. Um, yeah, if you guys get the boat out of here, maybe we could uh, get busy a little bit <laughs> here. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. But... Uh, so what we kind of touched on this a little bit, but what really struck you about the way the team worked together, especially as it was day four or five and maybe six, and it's like, oh, we are running out of time. We're working really well together. But I mean, was there what was that like for you as, uh, you know, trying to document this thing? It has obviously so much involved so many years. And as you're getting towards the end of that thing that can as we established only be one week long, no matter what. What was that like? Well, you, you know, as a filmmaker, you have, you know, you, you approach it as a beginning, middle, uh, an expedition as a beginning, middle, and end, you know? And when, you know, of course, I was always extremely hopeful that we were going to find 52. Um, so as a result, you know, but, you, you know, sometimes you don't know what's going to happen. And you really have to think about how you are structuring your film. You really have to think about what an ending is. And thankfully, um, it, it, our ending is not the ending that, that some people might think, but it, it's definitely a satisfying one. So that's kind of cool. Right. And again, we're, we're mindful of spoilers. So uh, <laughs> we're not telling you. Yeah, that. we're not saying what that is exactly. But, but short of spoilers, is there any other observations or things about the expedition just that, especially in, in retrospect, that you have thought now or, or recently that you didn't think in the midst of everything going on and all the kind of juggling and adrenaline and everything that was going on and when they well, actually... Well, it, it may not be about the expedition, but about whale song. You know, it's really interesting. Um, you know, you can't have any hunt for a whale. And I use the word hunt as in search. <laughs> you can't have any search for a whale that makes a unique sound without talking about um, whale song, for example, and most uh, appropriately, Songs of the Humpback Whale. You know, the album that came out in the early 1970s, done by a guy named Rod, Dr. Roger Payne. Um, you know, and that album was put out and people started to listen to that album. You know, there's all of these stories about, you know, people dropping acid and listening to that album or putting it on at parties or, um, you know, the album had it was on flexi disc that came out in National Geographic, very famous um, uh, magazine edition. And, you know, that album, you know, when people heard these sounds, suddenly they said, oh, my God, what creature makes such a beautiful sound, a sound that's almost even better than we can make? And, you know, this was obviously whales. And then they turned around and said, oh, my God, whales are doing this. Wait, we're killing these whales? We can't kill these creatures that make such a beautiful sound. And ironically, that led to the Greenpeace movement. That led to the Save the Whales movement, a big organized campaign uh, about the environment and, you know, saving our oceans and saving wildlife. And that actually, interestingly enough, led to the green revolution that we know today, the same revolution that, that we are needing to now fight climate. You know, look at look at where we are now with rising temperatures and, and, and wildfires and everything like that. So, you know, that whale song was instrumental in kind of gearing us up for the fight of our lives today. And that, that whale song that led us to 
save the whales, and now that's going to have to lead us to save ourselves. Yeah, it was really interesting, and I should know for people listening that there are times when the film kind of widens out and like uh, discusses sort of the roles of, of whales in literature or some of the history that you've just uh, now uh, alluded to, and and again the, the the part about Dr. Roger Payne with the the songs of the whales. That National Geographic insert, I guess, or version of it, it it's it sold a, a staggering number of copies. Uh, I think more than uh, at the time, if not still now, more than any other uh, record or musical yeah. collection or something. And it's like, and he and he and others, you know, really say nothing really got people's attention uh, about the plight of the whales and all the whaling that was going on until the songs and then people said hey well, I, don't, I don't like this man and then like you say then greenpeace and the green revolution stepped in and um but yeah for not those songs that they were you know readily accessible and uh, people having a whole new understanding who knows what would have happened well, anyway let's uh, we got a caller here let's get them involved in the show hi you're on talking animals with uh joshua zeman Hey, it's Clay from Land O'Lakes. I don't know much about um, sound and soundboards and uh, manipulating sound, but did anyone ever think about taking a whale song, a regular whale song, and turning it into a 52 hertz to broadcast <laughs> that whale? Yeah, that it, it, it was discussed. That was discussed, but we didn't think it would be very kind for when, you know, if we lured 52 over and then he realized it was just somebody playing a song. <laughs> Okay, so it was an ethical decision not to do that. Kind of. Uh, although there are, there's a film called Fathom Out. I have yet to see it, but I hear that they're actually using uh, and replaying whale songs in an effort to lure whales closer, something to that effect. Okay, well, I look forward to seeing your film. Thank you for making it. Thanks so much for your call. And, uh, yeah, I think that's under the uh, overall animal welfare commandment of uh, do not jerk a whale around. Uh, with a phony. I'm sorry, I lost for a second. Oh, okay, no, I was just saying the, the thing that the caller's referring to may fall under the uh, commandment of do not jerk a whale around with a phony uh, with a phony <laughs> song, so... Uh, but, it, but it was definitely discussed, but again, uh, I mean, can you imagine, you know, this whale is, you know, for years and years and years, swimming through the oceans, calling out, and then, you know, you'll see, you play back a response, and it's not a whale? Yeah, no, that, uh, we'd be having a very different conversation probably on this show right now if that... Uh, if that had happened, probably. But anyway, here's here's kind of a longer email, but I'm just, just in case you want to address some of but I'm just going to read it in its entirety. It sounded as if for a few years they thought 52 was deceased, but then got a quote-unquote voice recording and attributed to him. Each sound is supposed to be unique, but how do they know that quote-unquote new whale sound recording was not simply another whale with the same characteristics, especially if it was a hybrid or cross between two species or inbred, etc. Apologies if the guests already explained uniqueness, and th- thus they know for sure it's 52. Great program thanks uh, so ha- the question is how do we know that this this new call is in fact that same whale what we refer to as Watkins whale that's yeah. a good question um watch the film <laughs> and you will get your answer yeah I, th- I think to fully address it does brush up against or if not cross into spoiler territory probably but yeah. um but it's a very good question and Watkins is is, is the scientist who studied 52 and his sounds for many many years and uh uh, passed away some years ago, but was obviously a, a major, major figure in all this. So, so we're sort of nearing the end of our uh, time here, Josh. But a couple things that I mean, we, we've talked about how like social media and other things kind of really blew up, and the meme you mentioned early on, and, and especially in the wake, I think, of the New York Times article. Um, 
But there's also like kind of related to that, I guess, kind of this cultural impact. You include a segment in the film in which uh, Kate Micucci performs a song about a whale that never made any friends and the sense of isolation that 52 might experience. And this kind of led into an examination of whether 52 could feel lonely. Sentience and, and Vint Verga, who's this amazing uh, veterinary uh, psychologist guy, is addressing that. Anything more you want to say about that either? Just kind of, again, veering into that sort of exploration by way of song or just the, the idea of the well, whales. That's where it gets really interesting. Yeah. Can whales even feel lonely? You know, yeah. and, and that's a very worthwhile question. You know, so, you know, this, first of all, as you know, you know, or, or maybe not, uh, but I assume so, you know, some scientists get very angry when you try and anthropomorphize. Oh, yeah. That's you come know, up a lot on this like, show over the years. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, they do not like it when you assign human attributes to animals because that that it's not scientifically necessarily true and that's correct however we are a very self-involved species human being you know we're self-absorbed um and i think it's just human nature for us not to contextualize animals in within our own experience as related to our own experience you know so you know we as human beings call that loneliness now does a whale you know a can whales even feel feel and could it even feel loneliness now the very interesting thing is whales have what is called spindle cells spindle cells are also found in upper primates and, and elephants and those are those when you have a lot of them and they're and they're well defined those allow you to form social group and when you have a social group and cooperative feeding comes out of those social groups and uh, group child rearing and things like that of course when somebody leaves that group um, that's when you know you can see somebody kind of getting one you know the, the rest of the members kind of being like oh, getting upset or something like that so these feelings evolve out of group behavior and we know that whales have these you know spindle cells they are sentient and chances are yes they could probably feel lonely, but is it like the loneliness that we know? Like, so for example, whales, their main sense is not sight, it is sound. So what would happen evolutionary to an animal? What would those feelings be like if his main sense was sound? Would it change? Would he feel loneliness in that sort of way? You know, would it be a sad loneliness? Would it be a kind of happiness? You know, what what would it feel like? So we don't even know. And so it, that just even opens up a whole nother realm of questions, not just the loneliness question, but the anthropomorphizing question of, of how we treat other animals. Yeah. Again, there's so much to the film in addition to 52 and the expedition. And again, like I say, it kind of widens out periodically to, to address other important and related topics, including this one. And like I say, the history and literature and so many other things. So we have just about reached the end of our time. We've been speaking with Joshua Zeman. Uh, his new film is The Loneliest Well, The Search for 52. It opens Friday, this Friday, the uh, the 9th. And you can just search, I think, for The Loneliest Well to find out theaters or you go to bleakerstreetmedia.com and they'll give you a list of theaters so you can figure out what theaters near you to check out this film that I think by now hopefully is clearly i really really enjoyed and just thought it was so well done so josh thank you so much for joining thank us today on talking animals thank you thank you much appreciated bye right. in a moment we'll hear from lloyd schiller about the kindness that was extended to him by bush wildlife sanctuary when he needed help with a turtle that lived in the pond at his jupiter farms home and the enormously generous way he decided to thank the sanctuary right now though i'm going to step into the comedy corner with a nod to the conversation i just had with josh seaman about his whale movie this is jim gaffigan with a portion of a piece called whales in today's Comedy Corner on Talking Animals on WMNF. 
I've been trying to swim a lot, you know. You always hear swimming's the best exercise, but have you seen how fat whales are? <laughs> whales, they're like swimming all the time. It's not working, whales. Not working. <laughs> whales always kind of sound depressed, don't they? <laughs> Rejected by eHarmony. My Facebook friends forgot my birthday. Why am I so bad at hide and seek? The fish always find me. Wouldn't it be great if we found out whales were in complete denial about how huge they are? It's mostly water weight. A lot of water weight. <laughs> Once after a show, someone came up to me and they're like, you know, whales aren't fat, they have a layer of blubber. I thought calling myself Big Bone was a cop-out. <laughs> Blubber, that's like the opposite of muscle. It goes like muscular, tone, flabby, and then like a mile away is blubber. <laughs> Fat made a noise would be blubber. <laughs> Damn you, Plankton, you don't even taste good. Plankton, that can't be that high in calories. That's got to be frustrating for some whales. All they eat is plankton. I only eat plankton. You know, the fish are like, and cupcakes. <laughs> Just plankton sprinkled on pizza. It's mostly water weight. <sighs> that was Jim Gaffigan in today's Common Corner with a part of a piece called Whales, taken from his album. Mystery Universe. Now it's time to hear my conversation with Lloyd Schiller about the help he received from Bush Wildlife Sanctuary and the towering thank you gift to the sanctuary he recently announced. This is Lloyd Schiller on Talking Animals on WF. Good morning, Lloyd. Good morning, Mr. Strauss. How are you? Good. Thanks for joining us on Talking Animals. Of course. And I'll call you Mr. Schiller in exchange for you calling me Mr. Strauss, and then, then we'll be all set. Yes, sir. Okay, I like Alrighty. it. All All right. <laughs> so this particular story, as I understand it, begins really with a turtle, as many good stories do. So, how so? Well, um, I moved to Jupiter Farms in 2006, and I was fortunate enough to have a pond as part of the land that I have. And I enjoyed having my turtles and fishies in the pond that I would feed. They're wild, but uh, they all have different personalities. And on Thanksgiving in 2006, I went down to the pond to feed the turtles. And one of the turtles, uh, somebody had trespassed and fished and left a big fish hook in the turtle's mouth and he couldn't open it or close its mouth and I knew that eventually it would first of all being in pain and secondly it would die so after calling around I found there was a place in Jupiter called Bush Wildlife that could actually help me so the hard part was how to get the turtle out of the pond and ma matching wits with a turtle is a lot tougher than you might think <laughs> okay I ended up spending I ended up spending uh, Black Friday doing the thing I least wanted to do which was go to Walmart with all the crazy people there on Black Friday and buying a fishing net with a long pole and then 
attempting to uh, coach the turtle into the net. And that took about two hours, but I finally netted him and took him to Bush Wildlife. And uh, they were nice enough to keep him overnight and remove the hook and give him antibiotics and also told me that he wasn't a he, he was a she, which, you know, I don't know how you tell, but I renamed him from Morris to Maureen. And Maureen, 15 years later, is still with me in the pond. Wow. And uh, Bush Wildlife, you know, they didn't take any money for fixing him. So they take donations. Uh, I paid them what I thought, you know, my my schnauzer cost me to take to the vet. And then over the years, I discovered what an amazing organization they are. Uh, they're completely funded by donations, and they rescue, rehabilitate, and then release over 6,000 wild animals per year, which is an amazing accomplishment. And if you like, you know, if you like ecology and you believe that God put all the different animals and plants on the earth to somehow interact with one another, it's pretty amazing what they do, and they do it all based on donations. And then lately I found out that they've lost their lease where they're at and they have to make a very quick move to a yet-to-be-built facility out here in Jupiter Farms and they need money. Yeah. So, you know, I just figured I was going to give them the money when I died, uh, but instead of waiting for me to die, which I'm glad I haven't died yet, I went ahead and made a substantial donation so they could uh, prime the pump for donations for their sanctuary. So the donation you had kind of earmarked, excuse me, in your will, you expedited once you realized they were in kind of a tough ticking clock situation to relocate. That's exactly right, Mr. Strauss. Yeah. So, Mr. Schiller, do you feel like revealing the sum that we're talking about here just because it's pretty significant, but that may or may not be something you want to talk about on the airwaves? So. Well, it's fine. It's, uh, it's real significant. <laughs> It's real significant to me. It's $500,000, and that's a lot of money. And there are a lot of things that I could spend it on myself, but it'd all be frivolous. Uh, they need it. They need somewhere between 10 and $15 million. Uh, they've already bought the land, so that's done. They're starting to clear it, but the buildings are going to be expensive, and we're under the gun getting stuff done. So, uh, yeah, it's, to me, that's a lot of money. I know there's a lot of people down here to, that, to whom that may not be a ton, but it's a ton to me, but I think it's a very worthy cause uh, to do for them, and I'm happy to do it. Yeah, well, I think uh, certainly to me and everybody I know, that is a gigantic sum of money, and they must be thrilled because, again, the way you originally had set it up, I mean, which was still would have been a gigantic gift no matter how you slice it and when it was received, but the idea that they could get it now when they're in sort of a desperate time pressure situation right. is a huge exactly. help. And uh, as we touched on the other day briefly, uh, the fact that you are alive and can see the impact beats the yeah. hell out of the alternative, probably. So Yeah, well, yeah. the nice thing is uh, if, if they get it done soon enough, uh, I'll, I'll be able to see my name on uh, the Serpentarium, uh, the Tortoise Enclosure, and the Eagle Enclosure. So I've, I've got the naming rights for three different enclosures there. So uh, as long as they get it done, <laughs> I'll be able to see my name yeah. on, the, well, on the black. All I can say there is st <laughs> stay healthy, Mr. Schiller. Stay yeah. healthy. But uh, Yes, sir. I'm going to try. I'm sure. <laughs> now, will the Turtle Enclosure have a reference to Maureen somewhere in its, uh, in its naming? Uh, you know, 
that's up to that's up to Amy Kite and her staff, and you know, okay. I will tell you that they do an amazing job there. And I'm not yeah. trying to run a commercial. I'm just saying, yeah, this is an amazing organization that runs totally on donations, and the fact that they can rescue and rehabilitate so many injured and orphaned animals is just mind boggling to me. So if they if they mention Maureen, that will be great. She's a big part of our life here. Yeah. Well, yeah, she was pivotal to the story, really, so uh, so right. she should be mentioned. Sure. But, yeah, I agree. Amy's uh, been a guest uh, uh, on this show before, and, and we love uh, Bush Wildlife Sanctuary, and they do do amazing work. So I just thought this was a great idea of yours. And, again, to just kind of speed up what you had already decided some time ago is, is just all, yeah. all the better. So so thank you very much to, to helping them in that way, and thanks for coming on the show to tell us your story. I of really course. appreciate it. All right, Mr. Thank Schiller, you thank you. Girl. Thank you Have so much. Stay, stay safe up there in Tampa. All right. Thank you so much. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. I'm Duncan Strauss. Listening to Talking Animals. Coming up on WNF, the music kicks back in with Scott Elliott. Yeah, back from vacation and full of uh, post-Elsa uh, vim and vigor, and he's ready to rock at noon to 3 p.m., three glorious hours of music, followed by Sam Vall with another three hours of music, and we just keep the music coming as we roll into our block of Latin programming and beyond. Meanwhile, on this show is the prize for Name That Animal Tune. We'll uh, offer a lily brush, a fantastic gizmo for removing pet hair from clothing, carpet, cars, couches, and other stuff. The first person calls 813-239-9663 and correctly identifies this animal song. It's Name That Animal Tune on Talking Animals on WMNF. about reached the end of today's edition of Talking Animals. So if you can name that animal tune, you can call in after we get off the air and we'll take it from there. So we'll be back next week with another edition of the show. I invite you to join me for that. I also invite you to visit TalkingAnimals.net for audio archives of every show we've ever broadcast and social media links and all kinds of other good stuff. It's TalkingAnimals.net. I'm Duncan Strauss. Thanks very much for listening. Have a good week. Be kind to animals. Be kind to others. Be kind to yourself. This is Talking Animals on WNF Tampa.